0: It's your first Sunday with us. We're taking a break from our time in the gospel according to Luke. And we started a new series last week on stewardship. And so we continue in that. It's a six-week series as planned. And this is week two. So we'll be bouncing around a little bit uh, in different parts of the scriptures. And this morning we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's give our attention to the reading In the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for providing it to us by inspiration of your spirit. Thank you for preserving it for us through the ages that we might have it uh, today as it is translated into a language we can understand. Lord, we're thankful that we can hold it in our hands as a book or on screens, and we can know that you are speaking to us, just as as you have spoken to your people through the ages. And so, Father, we come now to the preaching of the word, and we pray that by your Spirit, you would work in our hearts, teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Oh, God, help us to grow in grace and in knowledge and wisdom Oh God, make us more like Jesus Christ. By your spirit, help us to live for you. Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant. Would you protect me from error? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O oh God. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. The ancient uh, Greek historian Herodotus tells us of a king, a king named Astyages, the king of Media, the king of the Medes, who had several dreams that the heir soon to be born to him by his daughter, his grandson, would one day rise up and overthrow him and his kingdom. So when that heir was born, he ordered a general to seize the infant boy and take him into the wilderness and leave him there to die. But having pity on the child, that general instead handed him over to a local shepherd. And that local shepherd and his wife raised the boy as their own son. Growing up in the home of these humble peasant shepherds, the boy lived as though these were his real parents and that this was his lot in life. He didn't know any different. He was completely ignorant of his royal birth and his kingly lineage. That is, until the betrayal was discovered some 10 years later. When it was revealed who he truly was, the young boy was swept away to live with the other side of the family with his father's side of the family. And there, he grew up in wisdom, he grew up in strength, and he grew up in wealth. He learned who he was. And one day, he would indeed rise up and not only overthrow the empire of his grandfather, but in 539 BC, he overthrew the very Babylonian empire itself. Some of you, I see the wheels turning. Who was This young boy, he was Cyrus. Cyrus, king of Persia, the one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, the one whom God would use to set Israel free from their captivity and allow them to return to Jerusalem as recorded for us in Nehemiah and Ezra. This is Cyrus. And the story of Cyrus, the reason I share it with you, is that it illustrates for us a wonderful principle. A principle I learned from that uh, Scottish theologian and pastor, one of my professors in seminary, Sinclair Ferguson, speaking about the Christian spiritual union with Jesus Christ, this is what Dr. Ferguson said. And I won't say it in a Scottish accent. It'd be better if it were. We must not let the circumstances of our lives interpret the realities of the gospel. Rather, we must let the realities of the gospel interpret the circumstances of our lives. Let me say it again. Again, without the accent. We must not let the circumstances of our lives interpret the realities of the gospel. Rather, we must let the realities of the gospel interpret the circumstances of our lives. You know, Cyrus was always a king, even when he was forced to live as a peasant. But for the first 10 years or so of his life, he didn't know that. But when the time came and it was revealed to him, what did he do? He grabbed a hold of his real identity and he lived according to the privilege that was afforded to him. In a much, much greater way, you and I, if we're in Christ, you and I once also lived in spiritual poverty. But when God made us alive together with Christ, we were finally able to take hold of the royal privilege that is ours through Jesus. United to him by faith, we are sons and daughters of the king. We're a royal priesthood for him. We are his chosen ones. We are his beloved ambassadors. And he's entrusted us With the gospel, with the very message and the very ministry of reconciliation. I hope you believe that to be true. Unfortunately, though, we don't always live like that is true, do we? We succumb to what I've learned to call spiritual amnesia. We forget who we are, we forget who we represent. We let the things of this world, both the blessings and the sufferings, we let the things of this world dictate for us the realities of the gospel rather than letting the reality of the gospel interpret for us the blessings we receive and the sufferings we endure. This morning, we're continuing, as I said, in our series on stewardship last year, uh, last week, sorry, maybe it feels like a year ago, but last week, I made it clear that stewardship is about more than just money, right? Stewardship extends to every aspect of our lives, and so this morning, we find ourselves being confronted with what it means to be stewards of the gospel, to be entrusted with the gospel. Last week, we saw that stewardship begins with Who? not what. Stewardship begins with who, not what. We learn that all things belong to God and that as his stewards, we are called to center our lives upon him. We should seek to live for him, to honor him, and to love him with all that we are. So this week, we're turning to First Thessalonians 2 to consider this brief testimony by the apostle Paul. And to be reminded of our great privilege and our great call to be stewards of the gospel. You heard me read it. And as Paul recounts his ministry among the Thessalonians, I want to begin with what he says in verses 1 and 2. And there in verses 1 and 2, he reminds them, the Thessalonians, and he reminds us that gospel stewardship requires gospel boldness. If you're taking notes, some of you are. If you are, this is our first point. I'll repeat it again. Gospel stewardship requires gospel boldness. In verse two, Paul makes a little bit of an understatement when he says this, you can look there. Uh, He says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. And here's the understatement. In the midst of much conflict. Much conflict. You see, before he came to Thessalonica, do you know about his life? Do you know about the hardships that he endured in particular? Do you you know what happened in Philippi in chapter 16 of the book of Acts just before he comes to Thessalonica? If you were to turn there, and I encourage you to do that maybe later today, we learn that Paul and Silas and others are with him, but Uh, They meet a a young lady, a slave girl, uh, who's practicing divination. She's making all kinds of money for those uh, who own her and they really enjoy profiting off of her and she begins to follow Paul and Silas and the others around and she can, these men are men of God, men of the most high God. Listen to them and what they have to say and I love how Luke uh, writes there. He says they became greatly annoyed (laughs) by her and so Paul uh, casts a demon out of this young slave girl. And guess what happens when he does that? She can't practice divination anymore. She can't tell the future. And so what happens to our owners? <laughs> they get hit in the profit, right? There's no more profit, so they're mad. So they drag Paul and Silas and into the, the marketplace and they drag them before the magistrates. And if you know what the magistrates do, they beat them severely. They beat them and they throw them in prison. And hopefully you know that they get out of prison. They pull their Roman cards, right? They, they get out of prison, but not after God saves uh, the jailer there and others, but they get out of prison. And upon release, they go right to Thessalonica where they again face intense opposition and persecution. And it's to that group that Paul's now writing to later. But listen, whatever they experienced in the past in Philippi and before that, no matter whatever they've experienced in the present, and even what they are experiencing as they write this letter, Paul asserts in verse one that their coming was not in vain. Their coming was not in vain, for they had come not consumed with their circumstances. They had come consumed with the gospel and the truth of the gospel. If you were to put yourself in Paul's Sandal's you might think that it would have been easy just to lay low for a while, right? Just lay low, let the opposition move on to someone else or something else, right? Because that's usually what happens. Wait for the mob to get mad at somebody else and then go on about your way. But that wasn't the MO of the Apostle Paul. That wasn't how he did things. Paul knew, Paul recognized that just as Jesus had faced opposition in his ministry, he knows that he must face it as well. Just as Jesus had spoken the truth, even when it wasn't well received, Paul knew that he must speak the truth as well. That requires boldness. I want you to notice that Paul doesn't stop short of reminding us from where that boldness comes. Look again at verse 2. He says it very clearly. We had boldness in our God. Paul believed that the gospel was truth and that God had called him to preach that gospel to others. And he didn't let the conflict that he faced dictate the truth or the power of that gospel. He didn't interpret the gospel based on his circumstances. He knew what he had to face to be faithful, and he needed boldness. And so he just pulled up his bootstraps, right? Dug in a little harder and kept going. No, he believed in God. You and I are not apostles. Hopefully that's not a surprise to you, but we're not apostles as Paul was. But if you know the scriptures, you know that we're called to share the gospel, to declare the gospel to others. More than just tell our stories, but also to tell them about Jesus, the heart of the gospel, to tell them that they must repent and believe. As followers of Jesus, that's a high privilege. It's a high privilege that we have to tell others about the power of Jesus Christ to set us free from our bondage to sin and the power of Jesus to reconcile us to God. But what happens when we do that? What happens when we share that message? Does it come with conflict? I would say that perhaps if you've never faced conflict like that, then perhaps you've never shared the gospel. Sharing the gospel comes with conflict. So faithfully stewarding the gospel by sharing it with others requires us most certainly to have boldness. To stand before others and to call out sin and unrighteousness requires boldness. To speak up for, let's say, the unborn. To raise our children in the truths of the Bible, truths about gender, sexuality, and identity, To uphold the dignity of the poor and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner and the outcast and the elderly. uh, To keep ourselves unstained from all the debauchery that floods those shiny little rectangles that we spend too much time looking at. And to insist in the face of the culture that Jesus alone is our only hope of heaven and that to inherit eternal life, all must repent of their sins and believe in him. When you take a stand like that, guess what? You'll be opposed. You will be opposed. And it takes boldness to take that stand. And not just boldness for boldness sake. I'm not telling you to be a jerk. The world has enough jerks. But be bold in God. Be bold in God, boldness that comes in the belief that God's word and God's ways are absolutely true and that God's words and God's ways are absolutely best for each and every person. Even if they don't like what it says, it's best. Even if you don't like what it says, it's best. It's truth. Gospel stewardship requires gospel boldness. And we will never have such boldness if we allow circumstances such as opposition, such as conflict to interpret its realities. One thing I'm always reminded of, particularly in the time I've spent on the mission field, even when the gospel is opposed, it's never robbed of its power. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It's not our power in sharing it. It's the power of God. Oppose us, oppose me, oppose you, all you want. Can't stop God. Paul clearly knows this truth. He clearly embraces this truth. And it flows from him, not only in boldness, but you'll see in a minute how he lived also, from it, how he lived among the church. That brings us to our second point this morning. If you're taking notes, gospel stewardship requires integrity. Gospel stewardship requires boldness, number one. Number two, gospel stewardship requires integrity. In verses three through eight, Paul goes on to discuss such integrity for his gospel proclamation. You can follow along with some of these in verse three. He states that his message does not spring from error or impurity or from any attempt to deceive. He has no ulterior motive, right? Uh, He's not beheld by some false teachers. In verse four, he speaks to his motive. He desires to please God and not man. That's his chief motive, to please God and not man. In verse five, He clarifies his ethic. He says he never came with mere words of flattery or a pretext for greed. And then in verse six, he clarifies his aim. What's his aim? To glorify God and not himself or his office. Came to glorify God. And then in verse seven, he gives us an illustration, an illustration of his integrity. He likens his ministry among them to a nursing mother taking care or feeding her own children. You see, Paul had come to them in boldness, but he'd also come to them in gentleness, which is important. He wasn't a jerk for jerk's sake. He came to them bold in God, but with gentleness. And like a mother, he was willing to die to his own comforts and die to his own needs in order to provide to provide the life-giving spiritual nourishment of the gospel that the Thessalonians were hungering for, providing what they needed most. And why did he do this? Why? Because he loved them. He loved them. He speaks of this affection in verse 8. Look what he says there. Look back again at verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Paul was more than willing to share the gospel, to share his life with them because he had them. And he had their well-being first and foremost on his heart. He brought the gospel to them because he was motivated by love. By love. Paul could have been like the false teachers of his day, and there were many. And the false teachers of our day too, there are many. He could have told them that the gospel was, quote, the key to their best life now. He could have been motivated by attendance and giving numbers. He could have been motivated by a desire to become the chief of apostles and thereby gain an earthly fortune. But instead, Paul is motivated by gospel truth, by gospel integrity. Paul knew that the gospel was not a means to some other end. He knew that the gospel was the end itself. He knew that the gospel brought reconciliation between people and God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He knew that the gospel never promised any earthly riches or comforts in great integrity. He not only told people this truth, but he lived it as well. And that's his point. I'm not only telling you this, but look how I lived among you. Let my life be a testimony to you. I was reminded of this type of integrity recently when I uh, watched the movie On Wings of Eagles. Maybe you've heard of this movie. It's about Eric Little. It's about his missionary life. Uh, Most people know, I assume some of you or most of you know the story of Eric Little. He's the one who decided to back out of the 100-meter event in the 1924 Paris Olympics because the qualifying heats were scheduled to be run on Sunday. And he said, not on the Lord's Day, good for him. And he said, I'm not gonna do it. And everyone knows that story. You know what happened next, right? He ran the 200 and got the bronze and then he ran the 400 and what happened then? He won the gold. And he broke the world record. Many of you know that story, but many of you may not know that he spent the rest of his life after that serving the Lord as a missionary in China with the London Missionary Society. He was actually born in China, his parents were missionaries there, his brother was a missionary there, and he went and served there too. In 1941, and that's what this movie focuses on, is after all that, that happened in the Olympics. It focuses on the rest of his life. In 1941, after Japan invaded China and conditions grew worse, Eric sent his pregnant wife and his two girls on to live in Canada, where he hoped to join them once some work. He was trying to help his brother do. His brother was a doctor. uh, Until that work was finished up. Unfortunately, Eric never got to join his family, he never saw them again. He ended up in a Japanese internment camp with other members of the China Inland Mission. The internment camp was a place where he ended up suffering greatly. And in 1945, he died from a brain tumor. Just five months before the end of the war. And they were, the internment camp was liberated. Think about that. Just five months. He never got to see His family again. What I love about his story is that though he suffered, he never stopped living for Christ or telling others about Jesus. He didn't just rest on that great gold medal that hung around his neck. He gave up meals so the children and others, particularly the women and the sick, could eat. He took the place of others who were being punished for small offenses. Even when it became known to his captors that he was indeed that gold medal Olympian and they wanted to shower him with food again so that he could strengthen up and race against them, he refused that extra food. He refused any special treatment. Instead, he chose to suffer with others and to be an example for the gospel in word and in deed. Like him... If we are to faithfully steward the gospel, then we must do so with integrity. We cannot let present or future circumstances determine how and why the gospel is to be shared. Instead, we must be motivated by love. Love for God, love for others. Love and nothing else. Well, so far from this passage, we've seen that gospel stewardship requires boldness and integrity, And let's get now to our third and final requirement. You'll find it in verses nine through 12. Gospel stewardship requires purity. Gospel stewardship requires purity. Speaking again of his ministry among the Thessalonians, Paul in verse 10 reminds them, quote, you can see there how holy and righteous and blameless Was his conduct toward you, believers, he says. And not only did he model this purity, he exhorted others toward purity as well. In verse 11, Paul again gives another illustration. He gave the mother illustration, now he gives the father illustration. He says how like a father, he was identifying and rebuking and correcting and encouraging them in their behavior, calling them, as he makes clear there in verse 12, to, quote, walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. Uh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? You might have Ephesians 4.1 or Colossians 1.10. This is a, a common refrain from Paul, from God. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Paul is rightly concerned that the Christian's walk matches the Christian's talk. He's concerned that their testimony is not tainted by their conduct. But why? Why? Why does Paul connect his stewardship of the gospel with his personal purity? I mean, I think it's pretty simple, isn't it? though believers have been transformed, just as Paul has been transformed by the power of the gospel, though believers have been set free from the law of sin and death, though believers, you and I, are indeed new creations in Christ, we still struggle. Paul still struggled with sin and the flesh and the devil. How many of you here this morning who claim to be born again in Jesus Christ never struggle with sin, with the flesh, or with the temptations of the devil. How many of you can honestly say that you no longer sin, that you are even now fully sanctified in this present today life? Raise your hand or stand up. Pretend I'm sitting down. (laughs) I thought about falling down for great effect. (laughs) Because that's what may happen if I said so. No one, not even one, no one. No one can make such a claim. They, They can make the claim but they won't substantiate it. Even so, what does the Bible call us to? Lives of purity, lives of faithfulness. I have in my notes here, thanks be to God, we can actually have such a life, not by our own power or works, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The spirit who convicts us of sin and judgment and righteousness. The spirit who leads us to confess our sins and to repent, to turn from our sins. The spirit who empowers us to do any good and any obedient thing in this life. The spirit who seals us for eternity and reminds us not only that the gospel is real, what reminds us that we belong to God and that nothing can separate us from his love is that not only the spirit of God that would lead us to pray as we did earlier, forgive us our sins, God, because it's only through the work of Jesus Christ that our sins can be forgiven. And that work is only applied to our lives through the spirit of God who lives in us. Embracing this reality then, embracing the truth that we're indeed free from condemnation because we're in Christ, embracing this will actually help us to live pure lives for God in the midst of this wicked and evil age. Realizing who we are in Christ instead of letting our sin and our circumstances distort who we are in him. If we do that, I think we can wake up from our spiritual amnesia. And we can look at others and say, follow me as I follow Christ because he's my only hope. He's my only hope. As those who've been saved by the power of God through the gospel, you can embrace your stewardship of this gospel and you can live in purity. Oh, it won't be perfect, but you can strive to live for God in his strength and shine like lights for Jesus in this dark and weary world. Let me uh, summarize here as we start to land the plane. Gospel stewardship requires gospel boldness. It requires gospel integrity and it requires gospel purity. I believe as a church, we're called to embrace this. We're called to steward the gospel that's been entrusted to us. Some of you already know where I'm going. It's actually written into the very fabric of our vision as a body of believers called to minister in this community. In fact, you hear it each week from our heralds. You heard it from Mike. His name's not Harold, it's Mike. Our vision is to glorify God by sharing our lives in the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community while standing firmly on his word. That's where that comes from, it comes from this passage. For us to faithfully live out this vision, we must remember what was said in the very beginning of this message, that wonderful quote that I gave you from Dr. Ferguson. We must not let the circumstances of our lives interpret the realities of the gospel. Rather, we must let the realities of the gospel interpret the circumstances of our lives. So I'm calling you this day to not give in to the pull of the spiritual amnesia that overcomes me And I know you so often. I'm calling you to remember who you are in Jesus Christ. You are a child of God chosen from all eternity to be the object of his love and of his grace. You're a member of his holy nation and his royal priesthood. And I call you to faithfully take up his call to steward his gospel. It's his gospel. I call you to share it to share your very life with others and to do so with boldness, to do so with integrity and by God's grace, do it in purity. You need help, don't you? So do I. We all need help. May God help us by his spirit, for his glory, for our good and the good of the nations. Amen? And amen. Would you grab your bulletins?